Human trafficking is one of the largest growing criminal enterprises in the world today. And whether you know it or not, as a healthcare professional, you have probably encountered a victim of human trafficking at least once in your practice. So what can we do about it? This very special two-part episode of the Keyword Podcast will try to help us answer that very question. So without further ado, here is the first half of the Keyword Podcast's episode on human trafficking. Welcome to the Keyword, a podcast about the tips, trends, and taboos of emergency nursing, where we pull the hospital curtain back on issues that emergency nurses and their patients often think about but seldom talk about. Hello, Nisa. How are you? Hi, Lisa. We have a interesting episode for everyone today. Uh, yeah. We're doing it a little differently. Um, we've touched in past episodes on elder abuse and child endangerment and domestic violence. Um, and this topic has a lot of crossover with those, but it's still its own category, so it deserves its own episode. Um, but it's not entirely clinical. So as an honorary nurse and to take the load off of Nisa, who does all the research, um, I did the research on this one. I tackled this topic. That's right. We have a favorite podcast that we listen to, and it's called The Dollop, and some of our listeners might be familiar with it. We recommend it. Mm-hmm. It's a history podcast, and it's two best friends that chat. One of them is the um, content expert, and the other one is the psychic. Um, he's the psychic. <laughs> and on occasion, they do a reverse dollop and the sidekick hosts and the content expert sidekicks. And that's kind of what we're doing today. We're doing a reverse keyword podcast. We're doing a word cue podcast. A word cue podcast. A podcast word cue. And we decided before a recording, we still don't say that word. No. Even in reverse. No, no. We don't. Oh, I wonder if we were to do the, like, actually say it in reverse, starting with the T and ending with the Q, if it would, if it would bring just as much destruction and damage to the hospital as saying it forward. Or maybe it undoes this, it does the opposite. Maybe it, like, you're having a crazy night. Maybe if you say it backwards, it undoes the craziness of the night, settles You're right. things down. You're right. I'm just not sure how to how to pronounce. What is that? It's a triphthong, I think. Right? There's three, three vowels in a row. I don't know how to pronounce those vowels in reverse. So let's just not say the word. Let's just stay away from it. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. Okay. So um, unfortunately, I think that when Gareth hosts the uh, dollop and does a reverse a reverse dollop, they're not my favorite episode. So let's hope that that's not the case here. <laughs> Ooh, well, and this is my way of calling Gareth out. If you listen to our podcast, go ahead, please hit me back and let me know. At me, dude. <laughs> well, this is a really important topic, and I'm, I am excited that you have researched it, and I have already learned so much, and I think that our listeners will as well. Um, and as you said, it has a lot of crossover with some things that we have touched on before, but it is its own very important category. Mm-hmm. And what we're talking about is human trafficking. And how we can use, uh, how you as practitioners in the hospital can help curb the tide of uh, human trafficking, which is a tsunami. For starters, uh, when we talk about human trafficking, I have images and thoughts that come to mind, but they're all based mainly on kind of Hollywood's idea of what human trafficking is. So tell me, what is it really? 
Okay. So I think we're all thinking about the movie Taken, where um, Liam Neeson's daughter gets kidnapped when she goes to Paris and um, is sold into sex slavery, and he goes and kicks a major ass. It's a great movie. If you haven't seen it, I really like it. The other two, not so great. Um, but that has that is human trafficking over uh, international borders um, and with a um, sex component. So the actual definition of human trafficking does not need to include sex. It is the use of force, fraud, or coercion to obtain some type of labor or commercial sex act. And you can be trafficked even if you're not being prostituted. So um, many of the victims that you see coming into your ERs won't even really know that they're being trafficked because they too believe that it includes being forced into sex acts. Uh, So that is a conflation that probably needs to be clarified from uh, legal standpoints and also from your practice. If you know that it doesn't, uh, that your victims are presenting, but there's no sexual component, that doesn't mean that they're not um, being victimized in some other way. It's also a misconception that you have to cross uh, state lines or international borders. Um, Trafficking and smuggling, however, are not the same thing. Someone can be trafficked locally, even within the borders of their own hometown. So on a legal perspective, smuggling includes transportation. Trafficking means exploitation. You can be smuggled and trafficked, but you can be trafficked without being smuggled. And that doesn't mean you need to be transported anywhere. This is important for you to keep in mind when you're dealing with patients in your ER. They could go to your church, they could go to your kid's school, and they may have grown up there and they may have never left there, but that doesn't mean that they're not being victimized or exploited in some way. So there's a lot of facts I'm going to throw at you. Now, there are a lot of excellent resources online for this. Okay, we'll throw up a bunch of links um, and a lot, a lot of these resources on our webpage. But just for our listeners to know, a very simple Google search um, will take you to the American Hospital Association, which will connect you with a lot of different initiatives that are designed to help um, deal with human trafficking. But... Um, For the sake of this episode, I wanted to throw out some sort of quick machine gun fire facts about human trafficking um, so that we can give an idea of how pervasive this is as a problem. Interestingly, the most recent comprehensive report I was able to find online was from the International Labor Organization, and it was published in September 2017. Um, So it's kind of old already. With that in mind, I believe, unfortunately, you should listen to these numbers and expect that they have grown significantly since then, because this is a hugely growing field. Unfortunately, one of the largest growing um, criminal enterprises um, on the planet. So here's some quick facts. Okay, stop me at any time. Let me know if you want to talk about any of these. An estimated 24.9 million victims are trapped in this type of modern-day slavery. 64% of them were exploited for labor, and 19% of them were sexually exploited. So those numbers already show you that sexual exploitation doesn't make up the majority of this. Forced labor takes place in many different industries. So of the 16 million trafficked victims exploited for labor, uh, 47% of them work in construction, manufacturing, mining, or hospitality. 30, uh, 3.8 million, which is 24%, are domestic workers. 
and 1.7 million, which is about 11%, um, are forced labor victims who work in agriculture. I'm not surprised by those last two numbers. I am surprised by the construction, um, manufacturing, and hospitality component of it. It's, it's a lot. 71% of traffic victims around the world are women and girls, but 29% of them are men and boys. So this is not a strictly female problem. 15.4 million victims, that's 75% of them, are 18 years old or older. Um, the number of children under the age of 18 are estimated at only 25%. This is going to become an important fact when we uh, touch on something a little later on. So keep that number in your hat. 75% of them are over the age of 18. So these are not just young, innocent children that are being pulled off the street. Um, these are grown-ups. These are adults who should be able to um, make their own decisions and are being prevented from doing so. There's a lot of numbers about global, but for the sake of brevity, about uh, 1.2 million, that's 5% of humans who are trafficked across the globe come from the Americas. It doesn't always involve travel to the destination of exploitation. We already touched upon that. Um, only 14% of them are moved internationally or internally. And about 74% of victims of sexual exploitation were living outside of their country of residence. So there's definitely some movement there, but they're not all moved around. Um, and then victims spend an average of 20 months in forced labor. So almost two years of their life, um, they are subject to being exploited. That means to me that we have an opportunity here um, to um, curtail that period of time. It, I think I would be it would be even more horrifying if this was a lifelong problem. If I were to find out that most victims spent 10 years, 12 years, it would seem harder somehow to get them out of it if they spent that much time in it. The fact that they spend only 20 months, just horrifying. But that means to me that people are able to get out of it. And so I think that that should galvanize our nurses, our doctors, our listeners out there um, to know that they might be able to make a real distinct difference in someone's life if they only um, take the time um, or the effort um, to pay a little bit more of this kind of attention and provide resources for their, their patients if they think that they might be being trafficked. A few more quick facts. 300,000 U.S. children are at risk for being trafficked each year. This is closer to home information. A pimp stands to make each year from one trafficked person, do you want to take a guess at how much money? $200,000 a year. What? This is a huge revenue stream. Wow. So okay. this becomes pertinent when we think about it. Um, again, down the line, we'll talk about this a little more. But trafficked people often become patients only when their pimp or their uh, controller believes that their revenue stream is being threatened. So a lot of times patients will present themselves at the hospital with very something that should have been treated a long time ago when it was a simple issue. And by the time it makes it to you, it's become dangerous or life-threatening or in some other way threatens their controller's um, bottom line. Revenue. Mm. So I find that to be a, a frightening and sickening factoid, but uh, an interesting one. Most children are lured into sex trafficking at the age of 15 years old. And this is a very scary fact. One third of kids who run away from home are approached by a trafficker within 48 hours of running away. Wow. 
such it's as they are lying in wait. Um, yeah. These people are legitimately laying in wait. They're looking for children um, in a park, at a bus stop, at a mall or a school who look as if they're uh, disenfranchised, unhappy, have no place to go. And they immediately descend upon them within 48 hours. And note that um, a lot of kids continue to go to school even while they're being trafficked. So their traffickers will bring them to school Monday through Friday, pick them up at school, and then traffic them in, at night and on the weekends, but then make sure that they go to school. It's one of the ways that they're able to keep flying under the radar. And I, I think that a kid who has run away from home, it's almost like fishing in a barrel. You know, I mean, if you're 14 or 15 and you don't have a roof over your head, you don't know where your next meal is coming from, and someone nice comes and says, I'll take you into my home, I'll take good care of you, I'll feed you. They don't tell you at what cost. I mean... Clearly, it's happening to 300,000 U.S. children a year. Wow. And these are just children. Okay? Right. This has nothing to do with the adult population. Let's get to some of the hospital stuff. Let's get to the stuff that I think is specifically pertinent to our nurses um, okay. that, that you can think about in your practice um, as you now have all these numbers. Now you have a, a, an idea of how pervasive this issue is. So a significant majority of trafficking uh, survivors report being seen by a healthcare provider while being trafficked. However, their situation was not discovered while they were there. And that tracks with what we know about um, victims of intimate partner violence is they say that they were seen as many as six times in an ER, not necessarily for the abuse, but a migraine or a GI issue or some physical manifestation of the stress that they were under. Um, and, and it wasn't recognized or, or they weren't necessarily screened. So that's, that's a commonality that they have with intimate partner, uh, victims. Got it. So you're already kind of, everybody's probably already aware of that. So this is yet one more item that you need to put on your checklist, uh, when you are approaching somebody in your ER that where something just doesn't ring right. Note that, and this will go back to a, a fact that I brought up earlier, about 75% of trafficked people are over the age of 18. Most states have mandates for reporting child abuse or child trafficked victims. But I'm going to say many because there's a large document that's available. We'll, we'll uh, throw a link up on the website. And there's a large document that's available that goes through every single state and, there are, um, and it lists their legal reporting mandates. Um, it shows what the law is um, uh, regarding trafficking, um, and it gives advice about who to contact. Um, it, it's it's a quick tool. It's more of just a flip list to see, oh, this is my state, and these are the rules that are here. So I didn't look at all 50 of them because it was really, really tiny fonts, and I'm going blind as I get older. But mm -hmm. most states have mandates for reporting child abuse or traffic victims. I saw that on all of them. But every state that I looked at, None of them, so I'm going to say many at the very least, do not provide similar mandates for the suspected abuse um, or human trafficking of adults. There are no federal mandates whatsoever about reporting adults who have been human trafficked. So 75% of the population of trafficked victims, there are no rules or mandates in place in order to identify them or how to report them. So. Wow. In your practice, I could see why, and you mentioned this earlier, that further complicates the issue. Because if you have a 30-year-old woman who you think is being trafficked or a 40-year-old man, where do you go? What do you do? It's been drilled into you what to do for children. 
But if you have somebody who's over that age, they're still being victimized. They still deserve your help. They still need someone to step in for them. But what are you supposed to do with it? Especially if this large document that was supposed to provide us with help, none of it has to do with adults. It all has to do right. with children. Right. Homeland Security spends a little bit of time providing some information from a very legal perspective. But it did remind me as I read it that human trafficking can happen in any community. Victims can be of any race, gender, or nationality. Traffickers can use violence, manipulation, false promises of well-paying jobs or romantic relationships to lure victims into trafficking situations. So we know that most children are going to get approached within 48 hours of being of running away. But how does this happen to adults? Um, so these are your young women that are over the age of 18. These are your men who are looking for jobs, who are looking for love, who come from a really bad situation. Also, the link between drug abuse and human trafficking is forged in heavy, heavy chains. If you are addicted to drugs and you get involved with a pimp who promises you drugs if you sew these clothes or clean these houses or perform these sex acts or, or, or cook all their food for them, that becomes this transactional relationship where you feel you need the drugs to survive. And they are the ones who will give you those drugs in order to do so. So, and you may think of it as this is your partner, this is your boyfriend, this is your lover. But if this person withholds drugs from you, doesn't give you your access to your own money, doesn't give you access to your own ID, doesn't give you, never leaves you alone. They are creating this environment where you are simply not free. Therefore, you're being trafficked. You, you mentioned something very early on where you said um, sometimes people don't even realize that they're being trafficked. And that was very curious to me because I wondered how, how it could be that you, you wouldn't even know that you were in a traffic situation. But I can see in that scenario that you just described where I, I'm going to do this domestic labor, or I'm going to sew these clothes, or I'm going to do whatever, you know, and you're going to provide me with these drugs that I'm addicted to, I could see where I, you know, a person would not identify that as a traffic situation. It's like, well, it's, it's my fault that I have to have this, you know, my fix. Um, and so you don't consider that as a traffic situation. Absolutely. Or uh, I was homeless. He gave me a place to live. Uh, I have to do these things in order to stay living here. But if I don't, I'll get kicked back out on the street. So they're not getting any right. money. They're being they're trading themselves as a commodity without even really knowing that they're being commodified, um, and that there shouldn't be an right. expectation of something transactional in order to merely have a roof over one's head, um, or to have access to food, right. or to be given the drugs that they um, that they were hooked on by this person in order to continue to survive. It's this vulnerable population that's being preyed upon. It's this continual circle of supply and demand. There are always women and men who find themselves disenfranchised in some dire way. And there are always people looking for that population so that they can capitalize on them in some way. Homeland Security has an indicator card. We'll also throw this up on the website that uh, lists some of these things. Um, is the person in possession of their own identification or travel documents? If they're not, who has that? Does the person seem coached on what to say if law enforcement is around? Are they worried about their immigration status? 
Were they recruited for one purpose, say to be a model, but they're working as a maid at a hotel instead? Is their salary being garnished in some way in order to pay off something that they owe? And do they have any access to that uh, salary at all? Obviously, were they being forced to perform sexual acts, which is like an immediate red flag to anybody, most likely. What? You're being forced to do this? We know that's prostitution. So we will definitely respond to that. But it gets a little bit more muddy if, you know, they're cleaning somebody's house on a regular basis. Um, Do they have freedom of movements? Can they come and go as they please? Do they feel threatened or do they feel that their family is under threat if they don't follow through on some obligation that they feel they're under? Um, Have they been threatened with being deported or having the police called on them? Have they been harmed or deprived of any food or water or sleep? If you're seeing them presenting in in your ER with something that could have been treated a long time ago, they may not even realize that that cut that they had was going to turn into an infection. And now that infection has gone septic. And now it's something that's actually threatening their life, right? So they, it's, uh, you know how you, you, uh, you never change the trash and you forget to notice, you you start getting used to the smell of the trash. You become nose blind to it, right? Like there's all these commercials on from like Febreze, how you get nose blind. Mm -hmm. I feel like victims become blind to the fact because they've lived with a condition for so long that they've just, um, it's become commonplace to them. And then by the time they've made it to the hospital, they don't realize that it's been this longstanding cycle of neglect and abuse that has trapped them in this now dangerous, life-threatening situation. And so they won't even necessarily self-identify. So you have to be the one as a nurse to go, hmm, this is super fishy. Why did this get so far? And if you ask the right questions, you may be able to identify that, wow, this person hasn't been given the freedom to come to the hospital or they've been told over and over again, "Eh, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. It's not that bad. When really it has become that bad. Um, Is this person able to contact their own friends and family freely? Are they allowed to socialize or like go to church on their own? So these are things that if you recognize this, you may be dealing with a victim of human trafficking. So a couple of things that I have seen in my practice, um, I remember very distinctly seeing a person who happened to be a agricultural worker. Um, he had been run over by a piece of agricultural machinery, some kind of a tractor type combine, something, a very sen- serious trauma, but was brought through the horseshoe to triage in the back of a pickup truck, like the bed of the pickup truck. So this man had been run over by a tractor and was picked up and put in the bed of a pickup truck and brought through triage, where any normal person would have called for an ambulance, called 911, and called, I mean, this was a significant, horrific trauma. But for some reason, the person who was over the farm or whatever um, did not call for an ambulance, did not call 911, but threw him in the bed of a pickup. That was a huge red flag to me. Why isn't this, this is, this is a time where you, it's appropriate to call for an ambulance. It's appropriate to call 911. This is an inappropriate way to bring this person to the ER. Uh, Another thing that I 
experienced over and over and over again, and we were um, we were told how to deal with this, is oftentimes people would come into the ER, uh, non-English speakers, and they would bring a translator with them. And we they would tell us that this was a family member, this is my brother, or this is my cousin, and they're going to translate for me. And we were told that, that you, you're not allowed to use that translator uh, even if even if they give permission, even if they say it's fine for my cousin to translate for me, because that person could be um, someone who is in control of their affairs, and you can't guarantee that that person is actually translating what you are saying to the patient or what the patient is saying to you. They could be um, sort of editing it or cleansing it or whatever. I mean, they might very well be their brother or their spouse or their cousin, and it might be completely on the up and up, or they might be, you know, a a mediary for a trafficker or whatever, and they are completely um, editing what's being said and what's being reported. And so we were never allowed to use a provided person. We weren't supposed to. We were supposed to use the language line or the hospital provided, um, you know, employee that could translate because of this very thing, uh, that, that you would have someone who was actually in control of their affairs that would not actually be appropriately translating what was going on. Right. Or just by virtue of that person standing in the room, your victim feels constrained about what they're allowed to say. They've been coached very carefully about what they're allowed to say and are not at liberty to say anything about that. So although we'll get to this a little bit later on, but one of the you know the cues to look at is, do they always look at the other person in the room before answering? Do, right. they, do they look as if they're checking, um, you know, watching what they're saying the in order to not cross permission. any lines or, or reveal anything that they're not supposed to? So yeah, that's super interesting. Uh, another comment that you made is that this, um, the human trafficking crosses demographics with age, race, um, socioeconomic, religion, all of those. And that is another commonality between child abuse, intimate partner, elder abuse. Those, all of those types also cross demographic, all demographics, you know, socioeconomic, race, um, education levels. It has that in common with those as well. So don't be fooled that it's always poor, dirty people or, um, you know, that rich, well-educated people don't traffic people or hit their intimate partners or their children or whatever. Exactly. Don't don't expect that it's always, you know, some big guy who's the size of the rocker Terry Crews and some sweet little innocent girl who looks like she's, you know, some waif who looks like she's being abused. No, it could very easily be a woman who's con- who's trafficking a man. It could very easily be an older person being trafficked by a younger person. It could be some young skinny guy who is controlling a much larger, older, bigger person because traffickers form something called a trauma bond with their victims. This is an emotional bond that arises from this recurring sort of cyclical pattern of abuse that's being perpetuated with this reinforcement of rewards and punishments. And that can come from anybody, right? right. Anybody can offer a reward and anybody can punish. The size differential doesn't matter. The age differential doesn't matter. So be careful of making an assumption that, oh, well, that little nice old lady can't possibly be controlling this much larger, older, uh, younger man. 
No, they could be controlling them by virtue of money. They could be controlling them by language. They, they could be threatening the lives, their friends and their family. Basically, any assumptions you might have that might uh, prevent you from seeing those red flags, do your best to put them to the side if, you, if anything at all smacks as not right. And you may see that not right because you're getting something presenting to you that could have been treated a lot earlier could have been treated differently or like you said brought to the hospital in the back of a pickup truck instead of a an ambulance so that could be financial but it could also be that they were worried that the ambulance would come with a police presence or some sort of formal reporting structure would get launched um, and that people would know where they came from mm-hmm. so they bring them to the hospital so you don't know what what house that they might be working out of so a lot of things to keep in mind um This trauma bond is a very interesting one. There's a TED talk by a woman named Barbara Amaya. Again, we'll put this link up on the, on the website. And she was trafficked for 10 years from a young age into, into her twenties. And she tells a story about, I believe she was either arrested or was brought to a hospital. Um, and she, she broke the script. She was allowed to be alone for a moment and she broke the script and she said, please, I just want to go home. I just want my family. Please just call my family. And so they did, but when she was ushered into the room, we've called your family, they're going to come and get you, everything's going to be okay. When she was ushered into the room, the person waiting in the room was her trafficker. They hadn't done their homework, Uh, they listened to the wrong people, and she was put right back into the life. Oh no! So uh, it's a terrible story. She tells it in order to try to show just how many misconceptions people can work under, how easy this is to be perpetuated. Um, but this was years and years ago. Now you guys have cell phones, right? Uh, oh, oh, your father is here. Uh, take a picture of that person before going in and show it to your patient. Is this your father? Mm-hmm. This person says they're your uncle. Are they your uncle? If you're mm-hmm. able to get them alone, Take that extra step and ask them to make sure that you're not putting them right back into a dangerous situation. All right. Wow. That's very interesting. Yeah. There's a lot that you have to think about already in the ER. Sorry to throw more on you, but I think knowing the kinds of people we have listening to this podcast and how um, dedicated you are to your patients, having this information at your disposal can only be helpful for you. Right. So um, we've talked a little about the, the ways that traffickers coerce their victims, but let's go through a little bit of that again. So they can lure their victims with false promises of economic opportunity. Um, they can withhold identification or work authorization or travel documents. They can demand repayment for a real or an alleged de- debt. Um, they can use or threaten to use violence. They can constantly monitor and surveil their victims' activities. And they can pay very little or not pay at all for somebody's work. This is how they will coerce their victims in. Traffic victims can be forced to live in some subpar conditions, like living in the same place as they work or living in a space that doesn't have any heat or running water or electricity. They could be living um, with many people sharing the same small space. Um, They might not be allowed to talk to anyone alone or without supervision. We've already talked about a minder. And how there might be somebody that's uh, acting as their family member or their partner, but whom you might be getting some strange vibes from. Like this person doesn't really seem to care. Uh, this person seems to be more here to control. And they might seem a coached on how to respond to inquiries from others, including police and other authority figures like you guys in the hospitals. Mm-hmm. So similar to a parent that is abusing or neglecting a child, similar to a partner who is 
abusing their their um, intimate partner. They won't leave the room. They're answering questions for them. The the answers seemed coached. Mm-hmm. They're all very similar presentations. Exactly. So there is an 10 rad, red flags infographic. Again, we'll throw it up on the website. Yeah, this is good stuff. Yeah, this is some really good stuff to think about. These are 10 really good key points. Okay. These are flags that could warn you that your patient might be a victim of trafficking. Number one, their clinical presentation and their oral history don't match up. Again, same as other victims of abuse. Mm-hmm. Their oral history seems to be scripted, memorized, or mechanical. Mm-hmm. So in this case, I noticed when I had to go into the hospital for pericarditis, every time a new nurse came in or a new doctor came in, and it was often over the 24-hour stay, they asked me the same questions over and over and over right. again. Sometimes the same nurse would ask me the same questions again. That's right. And I realized at the time that if I was giving answers that seemed rote or mechanical, that that could be a red flag. I said the exact same thing in the exact same order. So when you're interviewing your patients, ask them the same questions different ways. Mm -hmm. Do they respond exactly the same? Are they able to fill in the blanks or do they not have answers to some questions if they don't seem to be the standard questions? That could be a red flag for you that somebody is not, they're not actually telling you the truth. Someone with the patient, we've already talked about the minder, exerts an unusual amount of control over the visit. They jump in and answer questions. They don't allow the patient to answer for themselves. The patient always looks at them for answers. They refuse to leave. Mm -hmm. Those are things to keep an eye out for. The patient appears fearful, anxious, depressed, submissive, hypervigilant, or paranoid. I would say there's probably a few other things that might serve as, as red flags for you. But if, in particular, they're presenting that way, I think, when there's someone else in the room, that's got to be a double whammy. Mm-hmm. Is your patient concerned about being arrested or jailed? That could show you all sorts of things, most likely sexual trafficking, if they realize that they're doing something illegal. Um, but if they're um, hyper-concerned about that, might be a red flag. Mm-hmm. Are they concerned for their or their family's safety? Is there evidence that care has been uh, lacking for prior or existing conditions? Do you have somebody presenting at the hospital who has evidence of a lot of scars, a lot of breaks, a lot of burns, things like that, but they're only coming for one of them? Are there tattoos or insignias indicative of ownership? Are there dollar signs tattooed uh, if they're women near their groin? on their breasts, on their faces. Same thing with men. Are there chains? Are there, are there brands? Ask about those things if you see them. Is this an interesting tattoo? What does it mean? That's an interesting brand. Where did that come from? If they can't answer that question for you, if it doesn't sound like it was their choice, there's a red flag for you. Do they have uh, occupational type injuries or physical ailments linked to their work? Consistent ones. And of course, do they have sexually transmitted diseases? So those are 10 red flags that you should look at, and we will throw that card up on the website. Be sure to come back next time to hear the second half of this episode on human trafficking.